This is episode 73 of the Immunology Podcast, T-Cell Receptors with Dr. James Allison. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rao. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. James Allison from MD Anderson Center on the podcast to talk about his research on T-cell receptors and immune checkpoint blockade. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights of immunology news coming up, but first... Immunology 2024 will feature eight major symposia, each focusing on a specialized area of immunology research and featuring multiple presenters. Topics include peripheral neuroimmune interactions, cell death and immunity, innate immune memory, aging, obesity, and immune responses, immunotherapy, mitoid cells, mucosal immunity, and immunity to emerging pathogens. Don't miss this all-immunity gathering in Chicago, Illinois on May 3rd to May 7th. Visit immunology2024.aai.org for more information. Well, we have a big guest today. We do. I know you were practically bouncing out of your chair for this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so excited. So looking forward to sharing this conversation we've had with the one, the only, the father of immunotherapy, James Allison from MD Anderson Cancer Center, Nobel Prize winner in 2018 for his amazing work on bringing checkpoint therapy to the clinic for those in the know. Anti-CTLA-4 therapy was envisioned and pioneered by his lab. And that really opened the floodgates to checkpoint inhibition and completely, I think, changed the the landscape of treatment of melanoma, particularly lung cancer and so many other uh, tumor types that are being tested nowadays with so many amazing results. So what do you think is going to win next in immunology? It's tough because a lot of the, a lot of the latest things in immunology, it's hard to pinpoint them to one person. Um, but I guess the mRNA vaccines have already been awarded last year, so that would have been an easy guess. How about cell therapy with Carl June or someone? That one I like, yeah. Uh, maybe CAR T-cell therapy, because also especially now that uh, there's also this huge growth in CAR T-cell therapy for autoimmunity, so we've covered actually a couple of, of those uh, recent papers. So it looks like CAR T-therapy is a lot more... Uh, um, useful than we initially thought. So, yeah, I would like that. I would like to see uh, something like Cardium winning for for CAR T cell therapy, or you know, other uh, people that worked in the early understanding of T cell biology. So, I think there's there's yeah many options. What do you think? Something with microbiome? Is there anybody? Post microbiome stuff could eventually get there. I don't yeah. think it's time yet. You need to have it fix more diseases. And they tend not to do it posthumously, so. That's true, yeah. I don't know if the people who pioneered it will be around when it's time for that. We'll see. I mean, now we have to wait until October this year for, for the upcoming uh, uh, winnings, so, but we don't know what's going to be in. There'll be something else this time. Immunology had its turn last time. Yeah, I think so too. But well, you know where where it's always the turn of immunology every time? All the time. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. So, right. Well, I'm going to tell you on. about antibiotics. 
Antibiotics. Okay. I, I think we, we, we've been doing this for a while now. You have a couple this is the of... the second time. Two, yeah. two is not a while. Okay. I'm young enough that maybe two is a while. <laughs> okay. So what's the story? So this, is, this is a related paper to what we talked about last time, but it's a big deal in science. It is an antibiotic pre-organized for ribosomal binding overcomes antimicrobial resistance. First authors are Kelvin J. Y. Wu and Ben I. C. Tresco. Last author is Andrew G. Myers. So this is almost an organic chemistry paper, but it's also a microbiology paper. So they looked at macrolide-based antibiotics and used structure function work to see how they can make it better. So fundamentally, we have some really potent antibiotics, but they develop resistance, or bacteria do to these macrolides, um, like lincosamide um, and streptogramin B, streptogramin B, uh, because these inhibit the ribosome by binding there and preventing you know, the ribosome from functioning. But then a methyl group gets put on the ribosome that blocks their binding. And there's a couple different methyl groups or uh, acetyl methyl groups that get put on in different bacteria or dimethylation, and it kills the antibiotic. Those genes then transmit because they have fit to test capacity, and so you get resistance. So they used a kind of structural understanding of this to try to see if they could make something bind tighter or slightly differently and how to have, have less freedom of movement in the binding pocket. And they did some fancy organic chemistry, which is impossible to describe here, um, but they basically built out the macrolide ring on the other side to make it more stable with some bridging groups using some pretty sophisticated organic chemistry. And then lo and behold, through combinations of crystal structures and antibiotic, so, so that they, they threw it with bugs, right? And showed that it kills antimicrobial resistant strains. E. coli, um, EFEK list, Staph aureus. It worked incredibly well on everything. Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, C. diff, gonorrhea. So it's fabulous as an antibiotic. And they try to figure out why. And it actually, because of its, how it works, it pushes against those methyl groups and slots in next to it. So if it's methylated, it causes a twist. It, it binds to the ribosome anyway and twists the ribosome, further making it not work, the ribosome not work. And there was no way they could have predicted that ahead of time, but they got to work. And this antibiotic is called crestomycin. And they do a good job claiming we don't even know it's maximally optimized, but they don't see any toxicity on early screens of cell cultures and animals. And it looks like it could be the next antibiotic to come out to fight, uh, you know, multi-drug resistant bacteria, the escape pathogens. But it's a really, the paper's only six pages with five figures. And it is super sophisticated structural biology or really structural organic chemistry with some X-ray crystallography and a little microbial inhibition assay. But they're finally making new antibiotics. About time. That will give a Nobel Prize uh, to that because antimicrobial resistance is definitely a looming uh, catastrophe coming towards us. Um, 
I have a question. I always when I when there are this when this uh, antibiotics that um, affect RNAs, um, what is the risk of like targeting mitochondrial components? This is ribosome, right? So these are bacterial ribosome, which are sufficiently different from human ribosomes as to not have real toxicity. Yeah. Okay. Right. This isn't like that. That's why you have toxicity with yeast antibacterials because yeast is a eukaryote. But yes. prokaryotic ribosomes are, you know, it's a 16S, not an 18S subunit. And so you can make very specific antibiotics to uh, bacterial ribosomes. That's why we do it. So what, what what's, what's up next? How do you test this? How do you, like, can you bring well, this to the clinic ASAP? Or how, how exactly does it work? I mean, it's kind of up to them. But, you know, if they had the money, they could take this in the clinic immediately. Yeah. The GMP manufacturer or manufactured to clinical standards instead of in a organic chemistry lab, you'd have to scale up the manufacturing. So they show hundred gram synthesis and stuff, which is a good start. And then it's time to treat. Let's so really scale it to a clinical grade, you know, clinical trial grade manufacturing and putting people with a clinical trial, which of course is not just a little thing, but like if some company came along and wanted it, that's what they do. Well, I hope that works out. Um, so for my first story of the day, um, I have a very interesting story about, and forgive me for the, you know, the topic T-Rex, it's always T-Rex, they're always everywhere, but I love this. Uh, I think the story is very interesting and it's an overall arching uh, theme that I find very interesting. This is about uh, visceral adipose tissue uh, infiltrating T-Rex. Um, the the paper is called Two Regulatory T-Cell Populations in the Visceral Adipose Tissue Shape Systemic Metabolism, published in Nature Immunology on Valentine's Day. Uh, first authors are Santiago Valle Torres and Kevin Mann from the uh, labs of Ajit Kumar Basantakumar and Axel Callis from Peter Doherty Institute and the University of Melbourne, respectively, in, in Australia. So. It's been known for a while that you find, particularly, you know, a lot of these experiments are mostly in mice, but many of these uh, uh, also applies to, to the human population. It has been already known for a while uh, that um, there is a population of regulatory T-cells that live in uh, the adipose tissue, particularly this visceral adipose tissue that's in kind of in the belly area. And this was this this uh, was pioneered by uh, uh, people at the level of Diane Mattis, who's you know, well known for her T-Rex uh, studies, uh, first of uh, Marcus Feuerer. Um, and they've been this has been known for like ten years now. And it what has been observed that this this T-Rex are very particular. They have uh, very specific uh, transcription factors associated with their survival in the fat, particular PPR gamma. Uh, this is a transcription factor that is activated by a certain lipids and is usually associated with with adipose tissue. Um, and these T-Rex, they don't only exist, but they seem important and their presence seems important to maintain homeostasis, kind of a metabolic uh, fitness in this mice. And particularly, uh, they seem involved in sustaining glucose tolerance and glucose metabolism uh, systemically in mice, which I always find kind of, you know, uh, um, what's the word, uh, remarkable that, you know, there's this population of T-Rex in the, the adipose tissue, but if you remove them, these mice do 
lose, you know, some uh, glucose tolerance. They they don't regulate glucose anymore so uh, so well anymore. Um, so they, they they do seem to play a role. But what is also interesting is that these T-Rex are found. They've been initially were originally characterized and are really characteristic of the fat of male mice. Usually, male mice have uh, when they get older, they have more fat, um, and they do seem. It does seem that uh, age and also if you have a high fat diet, one of the things that you observe is a loss of this uh, T-Rex population. Is PPR gamma positive, uh, also ST2 positive uh, uh, population, and that this correlates or even causes uh, this regulation of glucose metabolism. Um, interestingly, this is not exactly the same in females. Females seem to be have a different, their, their T-Rex in their fat, uh, their visceral fats have different characteristics. And that has been shown that they seem transcriptomically different. They have different markers. And it's, so I, I've been following a little bit this, this topic. There seems to be an unclear uh, and but recent publications show that uh, one of the cytokines uh, that are important for the establishment of this T-Rex population is IL-33. So we already established PPR gamma, IL-33, and the absence of IL-33 affects the presence of this T-Rex and in turn, you know, metabol metabolic dysregulation. Uh, and this is particularly in male mice. So what they do in this study, they they look a more systematic view between your know, males and females and young and old mice and mice subjected to a high fat diet, and what they see that is indeed um, these uh, they can actually kind of take apart two distinct different T-Rex populations that can be found in the uh, adipose tissue of of, my, of mice. And they seem to be preferentially uh, present in either males or females. And this uh, PPR gamma positive IL-33 responding T-Rex population seems to be characteristic of males. And apparently this is related to the expression of IL-33 by uh, mesen mesenchymal cells in, my in males specifically. Uh, so uh, they, what they do, they do single cell uh, RNA-seq of T-Rex infiltrating, you know, young, so young, lean, female or male mice. And they show, they do clustering and they show that there's indeed two different populations and they identify a new kind of previously not really characterized population of cells that are uh, enriched in Th1 transcripts. So particularly CXCR3 and TBED, which is, you know, this uh, transcription factor associated with Th1 uh, cells. Uh, also, CXCR3 is also associated preferentially with uh, TH1 cells, and, and the expression is uh, driven by, to some extent, T by TBED. Um, and this is, and they see that whereas male mice are more likely to express this PPR gamma, IL-33 uh, uh, responding T-Rex, females seem to uh, tend to express less T-Rex, but more of this other phenotype. And so they, they what they, what kind of they, look into this these two populations and they find that indeed they seem to be completely different and they seem to develop uh, follow two different uh, development uh, uh, trajectories and that these uh, GATA3 which is a, a, a transcription factor associated with TH2 responses seems to also be important for the establishment of this uh, um, uh, this male related 
uh, T-Reg population, which so they, they show that depletion of GATA3 in T-Rex uh, really ablates this population, particularly in male, and that this results in metabolic dysregulation in males, but not so much in females. Um, on the other hand, they show that in females, there's a, a less of these cells, so because they're not recruited by this IL-33 produced in males, but then they leave a niche of, inflama that, of inflammation that produce, amongst other things, so it, it ends up having you know, conventional T-cells recruited to the, to, the, uh, to the bat, and that this production of, for example, interferon gamma is what ends up recruiting and transforming these T-Rex that have this CXCR3 phenotype to the, the vat of female mice. So establishing, uh, in a way, a regulation through a slightly different mechanism. But in, in, in a way, both of these uh, result in the recruitment of T-Rex, but through different signaling, through different preferential signaling. And so whereas these GATA3-driven uh, uh, ST, ST2-positive, PPR-gamma-positive uh, PPR T-Rex seem to be the most important in regulating glucose homeostasis in male mice particularly, which are more kind of prone to having dysregulated glucose uh, tolerance. In, in, in females, those cells are out, kind of competed out by the CXCR3-TH1-like uh, T-Rex, and they're actually depleting this subset by, for example, having a T-bed uh, uh, conditional knockout for, uh, under the FOXP3, uh, in FOXP3-positive cells actually re results in improved glucose response in old females. So really showing that there's kind of in a nutshell, what they show is that there's two, if you look at the, at the visceral adipose tissue, there's T-Rex that are preventing inflammation in that, in that tissue, and that's very important. Inflammation in the, in the visceral adipose tissue has negative effects in terms of uh, glucose uh, uh, homeostasis and also kind of general inflammatory uh, homeostasis. In males, this T-Rex are usually kind of developed in as a response to IL-33 expression, which is preferentially done in males. And these are the T-Rex that they take uh, residence in the, in the fat and they keep inflammation at bay and they help uh, to uh, maintain glucose tolerance. In females, this is less so. There's less IL-33 recruiting these T-Rex or inducing their, their, their differentiation. And therefore, this uh, is mostly caused as a response of inflammation that occurs. And then this interferon gamma and TH1 responses are the ones that are recruiting or, or inducing the, 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 the residence of these other different type of T-Rex. Uh, but they're both kind of important for the uh, normal functioning of the, the, the visceral adipose tissue. So in other words, men get dad bod and dad, which is fat in the belly, and that causes our T-regs to go wacky. And then we get insulin resistance, which leads to more dad bod. Uh, in a way, what they show is that this high fat diet reduces GATA3, uh, th th this induction of these, this particular uh, resident population by GATA3. And that is what it seems to be driving the loss of T-Rex in the, in the gut. And that is what gives you, and that is, uh, can be causing uh, a glucose, in, uh, lower glucose regulation. So, yeah. So men, as they get older, just can't have fat. Yeah. You got to stay lean. So. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, or or uh, they there's they don't do this in this in this paper, but it's been shown that apparently you can if you if you um you can treat it IL thirty three seems to specifically uh, boost this population. I'm not sure if it's like topical or how you get it there, but you can use IL thirty three in, in mice at least. IL thirty three is administration seemed to uh, help sustain this population uh, in the in the, in the vat. So maybe just do that. Inject yourself with IL-33. But yeah, I think the humans is not as clear. I think uh, this mice uh, system is a bit more clean. Um, but yeah, in general, the fact that we have you know, T-Rex uh, helping us uh, maintain you know, homeostasis of our, of, of our fat, fat can be very inflammatory if left unchecked, for sure. I wonder why we evolved this way. Because we, I don't think, because we just... First of all, we would never get so fat, right? I think we just never planned for it. Evolution never planned for us to be fat. Well, I'm also going to talk about T-Rags, but not so depressingly. Oh. I'm going to talk about how, in Nature Immunology paper, about how IL-23 stabilizes an effector T-Rag cell program in the tumor microenvironment. So this first author is Tobias Wertheimer. Last authors are Sonia Tugase and Burkhard Becker came out on Valentine's Day. All right, so Tregs are bad, bad little children in cancer. The tumor microenvironment Tregs, as we know, are immunosuppressive and let cancer go wild. And this paper looks at one of the things causing it. And one of the things causing it is IL-23. I'm done now. No, so uh, myeloid cells, myeloid cell derived IL-23 in this paper, they look at it and it, they demonstrate that this the myeloid cell IL-23 fuels tumor growth, which is, was known, but how it's doing it in part is by generating effector Tregs, which are immunosuppressive. And so they, I mean, that's the punchline. There's not a lot past that punchline other than they really demonstrate IL-23 through the IL-23 receptor on FOXP3 Tregs is generating immunosuppressive phenotype. But they do this with tissue-specific knockouts with GFP, with, you know, YFP and GFP and RFP reporter strains and crosses and knocking things out. And they use the fact that I think the IL-23 receptor is on the X chromosome, so they can use natural mosaicism through X-linked inactivation to generate, you know, natural mosaics um, to demonstrate a bunch of this. And they hunt it all down and do way too much RNA, single-cell RNA-seq, just so much to really look at all the profiles and validate, yeah, it's coming from myeloid cells. That's where the IL-23 is. Yeah, these Tregs have different phenotypes. And with IL-23, they are this effector type, which is immunosuppressive. If you knock that IL-23 receptor down, the Tregs lose some of their FOXP3 and the levels go down. And then they produce more you know, inflammatory cytokines. And if you look at other T cells, yeah, they're producing more inflammatory cytokines. Without these Tregs, the Tregs come on board. There's less of it. but that's why you read the papers to go in all the gory detail. But fundamentally, they do a tour de force of cell line lineage tracing, essentially with these reporter strains. Not so much differentiation, but activation of effector status, right? From naive to effector status of Tregs and really show that IL-23 in the tumor microenvironment, as derived from myeloid cells, leads to immunosuppression and growth of the tumor. If you get rid of it in these tumor models they did, they can kill the tumors then, the host takes over, and the tumors shrink. 
And then similarly, they looked in human cells and saw there were better outcomes with less IL-23 in human cancers. They did a little bit of human work. Now, the good news is there's already an IL-23 antibody on the market. There's gazelkimab for psoriasis and IBD. So you already have an antibody that could be used in cancer based on this type of work, which means it's a really logical extension to go into human trials. So that's actually really cool, right? And these are used in IBD, and so you're worried about colon cancer risk with immunosuppression, but this suggests that in this case, you're not going to have that problem. It's very, yeah, it's very interesting because when you think of IL-23, I, I think of more like as uh, in, inducing TH17 cells. Um, so, and I think it's also been some, you know, there's, we, we talked about other and other papers about you know, IL-6 and how important IL-6 receptor seems to be for T-Rex in the muscle for muscle repair. So uh, it, it always shows how much we underestimate how T-Rex, they just do whatever they want. <laughs> and they just take whatever signal they like and they just will run with it and, 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 and wreak havoc if, if they have to. Because these are, these are, these are bona fide T-Rex, but uh, they don't, uh, they just get activated uh, by sensing IL-23. So I it's very, it's very interesting. It's very remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's a really strong linkage that they go through, which is why it's worth reading the paper. But me describing all of it is they cross this mouse to that mouse and do a reporter thing and knock out one of the paths and see this. And they do the other thing and trace that. I mean, it's yeah. really just like every type of mouse combination you could possibly ever want. Flocks yeah. is something else done to demonstrate a very robust linkage. So it's very well done. It's very strong work. I, I, I think it is a little Maybe I'm underestimating, but I think it's a bit controversial. So I think they probably had to really show their point because I think oh, yeah. this is non-obvious uh, in my in my when I think about it. Uh, so this is very interesting because I would have I would have not expected this. No, which is kind of cool. How long did they take for the revisions? Do we have? Oh, the, let's we, see here. Do we have the times? <laughs> oh, good question. Let me look here. Uh huh. You know, it's not on blast like it is for a nature paper. Right? It's nature immunology. They tend to be. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking for it and I cannot find it. I'm very curious because this also looks like a lot of work. I'm just like. This is a lot of mouse breeding. Oh, well, actually, it's not. It's just a year. So one round of here, go breed these mice and then six months more work. Yeah. Yeah. That's not too bad. Okay. It's not the worst. All right. Very, very interesting. I mean, this effector T-Rex are like, it's hard because often the effector T-Rex are hard to culture and are hard to, you know, so oftentimes we kind of ignore them or they die or we, we don't, it's hard sometimes, especially in, in this in vivo experiments to follow up, follow those cells. So maybe that's why we didn't, I don't think we saw this coming. Okay. So for our last, you know, paper today, just a quick, uh, it's not going to be a long paper, but I thought it was very interesting. It was published in Nature, uh, and the title says it all. Smoking changes adaptive immunity with persistent effects. So kids don't smoke. Uh, this is tobacco, published, right? Tobacco smoking, Got to yes. be real specific with kids these days. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I don't know about the rest, but definitely tobacco smoke. Uh, has all those, you know, the, the tar and all those thing, inflammatory things. So just stay away from it. Um, so it was published in Nature, also on Valentine's Day. We have a lot of Valentine's papers today. Um, first author, uh, Violaine Saint-André, I hope I didn't butcher uh, the name, uh, from uh, the labs of uh, Derek Duffy at the Institut Pasteur 
and this is part of what they call this milieu interior consortium, like the interior uh, environment uh, consortium. So they, in which it looks like they have like a thousand uh, people, which they have blood from, and they have, you know, they fill a questionnaire about lifestyle and they try to find uh, correlations between, you know, biological measurements and lifestyle. So uh, what it looks to me is like for this paper, basically what they, they, they look into is they have all these thousand, I think it's thousand samples, and they try to find, identify correlations between uh, response to, to uh, immunological stimuli and production of cytokines and certain proteins just to see how uh, it responds to, to activation and then whether they can find correlations with a lifestyle uh, information. So basically what they do is they have this whole blood uh, stimulation and they stimulate with different types of agonists, which can be roughly uh, divided into either microbial products, uh, BCG, which would be BCG or E. coli or Candida, uh, either viruses, so they have influenza, in fact, with influenza, or with polyIC, which is, you know, a, um, a DNA, so a nucleic acid-related uh, uh, st stimulus. And they um, uh, they have other T-cell activators, so this uh, enterotoxin B from Staph aureus, which is a super antigen, um, uh, or anti-CD3, CD28, uh, and uh, or cytokines, TNF, I1 beta, interferon gamma. And then they measure in response to this after 20 hours of, cult of culture, they measure a variety of chemokines, cytokines, and other, uh, other factors. Um, and then basically they run kind of correlation with, with the things that they have in the files of these patients. And, and one of the things that really comes up uh, and they focus on for this particular publication is the effect of smoking. So they see there are three um, elements that show a correlation uh, with activation of cytokine production, kind of activation and response to this stimuli. Uh, and it's smoking, CMV status, and uh, body mass index. So, um, and CMV, I think we kind of know that CMV, especially if you have your CMV positive, you're going to have mostly a slightly different repertoire of T cell. You're going to have more activated cells in your, in your blood. You usually have an increase in this memory cells. So, uh, CNV uh, is, I think, this already kind of been known and is fairly clear. I think also uh, uh, body mass uh, index as well. But so they focus more on the smoking part because it's very interesting that they see that those patients that either smoke currently or when, when the sample was taken or there was, so they, they show an increase in, in, in certain cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, and particularly they see a, a big uh, signal when it comes to CXCL5 uh, production uh, after a stimulation with E. coli, uh, more induction of IL-2 uh, and IL-13 uh, after stimulation with the super antigens that would stimulate preferentially T cells. Um, and this also correlates with like previous smoking. So to some extent, past smokers also have some increased uh, activation. Um, and so they, they see activation, so kind of adaptive, more adaptive uh, immune system. So CXL5, IL-2, IL-13, uh, they also, but they also see expression, uh, uh when you have innate immune simulation, the, with, uh, I don't remember if it's uh, with poly-IC, but they also seem to have, uh, some simulation for poly-IC and LPS, which are 
and specific uh, stimulation, they also seen that the smoking status really seems to correlate with response. And what they basically, they, they look at it and, 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 and one of the things that they measure is DNA methylation changes to try to explain where this difference comes from. And they end up zeroing into some uh, uh, CPG sites and methylation sites that seem to be uh, correlated specifically with smoking. Um, and one of these, so they, they see some, so they do all these, you know, fancy statistical analysis in order to kind of differentiate and pick up covariants that are really associated with smoking and not with co-other uh, um, cofactors. But they, 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 they identify a couple of, of, of sites. Uh, some of them, for example, in the aryl hydrocarbon receptor repressing a repressor gene, so this is known you know, to be associated with inflammation. And there are other, they, they identify a couple of other genes that seem to be differentially methylated in, in, in um, smokers. Uh, and so this has the, this results in an effect on the adaptive immune responses that is associated with this, this DNA methylation uh, that acts as kind of. Uh, transactivator of genes related to these activation, these um, uh, immune responses. So I think that's kind of the most interesting finding. They also look at some other uh, uh, SNPs, but I think this is probably the, the, in the nicest takeaway uh, message from the, the paper that they do look, they do seem to find specific methylation patterns that are associated with smoking and that this affects the immune response in, in patients uh, in response to specific um, stimuli um, either uh, to, to T cells or to innate cells. I think it's interesting. It's so persistent after they stop smoking. Yeah. Yeah. So there's only, they only see really the persistence for these effects on the T cells. So no, so not so more on the innate. So on those innate signals, but, but it's mostly for the adaptive uh, immune response that seems to be persistent and kind of even related with the length of time since last smoking. So if it's been 20 years, it's less than if it's been two years. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Kids don't smoke. No, it affects your, epi your epigenome. Stop the way. It's not worth it. Save an epigenome. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's good that I don't smoke. Yeah, I have never either. All right. Well, let's, let's get going because it's going to be a fun part. We're going to be speaking here with Dr. James Allison, MD Anderson Cancer Center in just a moment. But before we get to that, we're excited to announce the launch of a brand new podcast on mentorship and science. Brett and I are both hosts of several episodes of the Lab Coats and Life podcast. Find it at www.labcoatsandlifepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you sign up for updates about the Lab Coats and Life podcast before March 27th, you'll be entered to a Lab Coat giveaway. Enter the contest at www.stemcell.com slash contest. Today, we have a truly very special guest. I'm very excited about this conversation today that we're going to have with Dr. James Allison, the one and only. He is, of course, Regental Professor and Chair of the Department of Immunology at MD Anderson Cancer Center and Executive Director of the Immunology Platform and Director of the James P. Allison Institute at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. He has been uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology in 2018 in recognition for his work on checkpoint inhibition, uh, but he has had a very illustrious and long career that we are hoping to discuss uh, with him today and to hear more about how he 
came about his his work and uh, any advice for younger scientists. So, Professor Allison, thank you. It's such a great honor uh, to have you here in the podcast. What a highlight. Thank you so much for uh, making the time. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I always love to talk about these things. It's a pleasure to have you. All right, Brenda, I know you've been, you've been waiting. Fire away. So I think everybody, your, your name by now is very well known amongst, you know, the immunology community and the impact of your work on checkpoint inhibition in patients and treatment of cancer, particularly, you know, cancers such as melanoma, uh, lung cancer is, is really uh, indisputable. I think it's well known in the uh, community, but I was hoping you can give us a quick recap of your kind of the start of your career and also some of your earlier work that uh, is also very important and then maybe build a, a little bit onto your current work uh, and, and, and how you are continuing your, your research on T-cell immunology, checkpoint uh, inhibition, cancer treatments. So maybe start a little bit with some of your early work on, t on uh, identifying the T-cell receptor, for example. Many might not be aware of that fact. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. Um, I, um, as a kid, I was always interested in science and biology in particular. And when I um, got into the University of Texas in Austin, I majored in um, in biology, but I was also interested in biochemistry. So I actually did most of my research on biochemical projects, <clears throat> particularly in protein chemistry, um, which was fun. But after a while, it gets a little bit repetitive. And I was lucky enough, my, I think it was my senior year as an undergraduate, actually, 1968, <laughs> a long time ago, to uh, have a lecture from a professor named Bill Mandy, who was a, an immunologist who taught a course in immunology, which at the time was mostly just about antibodies, immunoglobulins, you know, and, and B cells, the kind of immune cell that makes antibodies. And there's quite a bit known. I mean, we know a lot more now, but there was quite a lot known about it. But, but still, it was interesting seeing the structure of the antibody molecule and how it you know, works uh, to identify a lot of different things. But the last lecture of the semester, he gave a lecture on T cells, which is were just being recognized as a real thing um, and another component other than B cells. T for thymus, meaning they develop in the thymus gland unlike B cells, which come directly from, from well, come from bone marrow and, and uh, birth. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but those are the two main types of cells. Uh, but uh, while the antibodies is well known that that's the receptor, that's the thing that they use to uh, recognize things, it was completely unknown in T cells. And, and uh, his lecture basically said there was this new kind of cell that that um, also it looks like the clones, you know, you have millions and millions of different clones with different receptors and they go through your body though and they, they percolate through the tissues and through the blood and through the lymph and recognize virus infected cells or potentially cancer cells and deal with them. And I just thought that is really cool. And so I went after class and said, how does that work? You know, I mean, how do they recognize stuff? Is it with an antibody or, I mean, how do, and how do they, if, they, if it's not antibody, what do they do? do they, how do they kill? How do they communicate with, and he said, nobody knows anything. He said, I really don't think there is such a thing. Actually, I think it's just a, another kind of cell that's got an, immuno, an antibody molecule stuck on its surface or something. 
And I just thought, wow, this is so cool. And um, so at that point, I just decided I was going to switch or, or move from, I was doing some cancer-related projects uh, in biochemistry because I had an interest in that due to my family history and extensive um, experience with 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 that in my own, my own family. And so someday I'd hope to do something about that. But, um, you know, Tisa thought, well, this could be, this could be really fun. And so I um, then got a um, postdoc, did a postdoc in an immunology lab. Unfortunately, I just got stuck doing protein purification to try to determine sequence of uh, molecules called MHC, which are major risk value, which are very important molecules. Uh, and uh, we know play a central role in, in, in the immune system. But the work itself was kind of boring because I was just purifying protein again and, and sequencing it. And uh, so I got a couple, I actually did a few things that I was actually not supposed to do, according to my PI. But um, anyway, I got my first faculty job based on some of that work at uh, MD Anderson, although not at the main campus, at a new campus that just opened near Austin called the Science Park, which was a wonderful place. And uh, um, my job there was partially to make antibodies to cancer cells and try to determine changes that occurred as a normal cell became a cancer cell. That was fun, except I was really interested in T cells. And so I decided that I was going to try to figure out what the T cell, what the antigen receptor was, because it, it was that was the holy grail in the early 80s. People had been looking for it since the 70s. And the literature, I, we didn't have a very extensive library. Remember this before the Internet. So I went into Austin on weekends and read the literature and said, this is this has just got to be crap because there was contradictory stuff and stuff that made no sense to me, soluble factors, one soluble, one bound, and all this stuff. And finally, I just said, I'm going to jettison all that. I'm just going to take a completely agnostic approach to this. And thinking as a biochemist and protein chemist, what it ought to be. And then I'll look for such a molecule. And uh, so I, I decided that it had to be a membrane-bound thing. It was probably two chains that had a disulfide length thing like building on antibodies or maybe four chains i didn't really know but anyway i used some immunological some biochemical tricks that i knew and showed that when you if you compare t cells and b cells purified and, and looked at the proteins on their surface those that had di disulfide bonds which is just a chemical way of holding two different chains together the only one on B cells really of any importance was the antibody molecule. We could show that. And there was this mysterious thing that hit, looked just like I predicted on T cells and not on B cells. And so I then, you know, got a lot of different clones of T cells in the form of T cell leukemias, reasoning that each one ought to have a different receptor, purified them, sequenced them, and showed that they had constant and variable regions. And it was exactly what you know, it would, you would expect the T-cell receptor to be. Um, it was nothing like anybody else had published before. And since I was a, you know, a guy at this little place nobody had heard of, and I wasn't, I'd never been heard of, I had a hard time getting it, uh, anybody to pay attention to it at meetings and things. But as what happened, um, uh, Pippa Merrick, uh, who was a really one of the leading T-cell biologists at the time, had made a monoclonal antibody. One of her students read my paper and used their antibody to purify the, the thing that activated those cells. And it was the same structure. 
And then I sent them some of the antibodies that I had made and showed that it reacted with the receptor they had on a T-cell hybridoma that actually activated or blocked it, depending on what you did, and what was the formal proof that that, that was correct. Um, and then we tried to clone the, the genes, again, using more of a direct, well, two approaches, but Mark Davis got there before we did. And so, you know, that that that's history. But, you know, we at least were able to tell him after he got what turned, there was an acidic chain and a basic chain. And we showed they both, you know, had constant reverberage. And so he got the beta chain first. And at least everybody knew from our work. There was another, there was still some work to be done. And so, you know, later on, people got the gamma and then the depth and finally the alpha chain and, you know, the rest is history. But, but that, but that was a lot of fun. It was done. We did it strictly by biochemical approach. And then others provided the functional link that really proved that. But I, really wanted to keep going, you know, because, you know, that's just the ignition switch, you know, is all that is. And uh, got, the T-cell regulation had to be more complicated. But that work attracted the attention of, of the immunology community. I went to Stanford for almost a year and worked in Herb Weissman's lab trying to do the cloning. Again, of course, we lost that race to, to Mark and to Tech. Um, but it did work out. I mean, I learned some molecular biology, but it also got me, I was asked to give a seminar at Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, and I gave a talk and they offered me a job. Um, it was fortuitous. I was an assistant professor at UT and they offered me a job as full professor. So I moved there and, and, and you know, expanded the work and went on to show that people knew that it was more complicated than just that molecule. The cellular immunologist knew that there was a, what was called a co-stimulatory factor, an obligatory second signal. And so we did a lot of work uh, uh, showing that the molecule called CD28, another molecule of the, was was that molecule, was the co-stimulatory molecule, which is kind of like the, the break, the, the accelerator pedal, sorry, of the process, but. When we got that molecule, there was a gene that had already been cloned, and we sequenced it. There was a gene that had already been cloned by a French group that was just trying to clone everything that they thought was T-cell specific. Uh, and uh, one of them, I think it was called CTLA-4, CTL cytotoxic T-lymphocyte antigen, associated 4, and uh, quite a mouthful. But uh, it turned out it wasn't T-cell associated. Its function was completely unknown. Uh, but what caught our attention was that it was highly homologous to CD28, at least on parts of the outside domain, which would be what you would expect to recognize things. But the in, the inside was different. And um, any event, so we made antibodies to that, cloned it, and uh, we, everybody was worried about that, you know, was concerned with that molecule. Uh, we weren't the first, another group got it, and, and uh, so it's another CD28, which was made sense since it was highly homologous. Um, but, but we made an antibody in, in our own work, uh, Max Crummel in, in the lab at the time. You know, one of the things we realized, if you have T cells in, or anything and you put them in a dish and you give them some signals and all of a sudden they do more of what they're doing, they divide faster, they make more lymphokines or whatever, that it's probably a positive signal. But if that's all you do, and you've got other cells there, you don't know whether you're giving a positive signal or removing a negative. 
And so the only experiment that the other guys did was one that would show that you got more, you know, interleukin two or whatever. But of course, their experiment didn't at all rule out there was a negative one. And so we we realized, you know, you can't just stop when you doing the experiment that gives you the answer that you expected. You know, is 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 relatively easy, but you've got to. That's not the game. The game is to give you do an experiment to get, that tells you that you're right, that it can't be anything else. And that was that was the key thing that led us in that work. I mean, we weren't the first to get it, but we said, well, they only did half the work. We got to do an experiment that proves that it's a, a go signal instead of removing an off signal. And so we did some extra experiments, which I won't go into, but had to do with cross-linking it instead of having it in soluble form and did it two or three different ways and said, no, it's an off signal. And you're just blocking an off signal, which is why it's like that. And that was really controversial for a while. But if I was, my main advice to the scientists is really think about that when you get data. It's not good enough to get data that's consistent with your hypothesis. It needs to rule out the contrary hypothesis. Um, if there are two of you, I got to always remember, just think about it. You know, look at the data, think about it from every angle. And then uh, say, is there is there some something else that can do that we're missing? And so anyway, that was the key to that. And so we showed it was a negative and that was made for a um, grist of discussions at Gordon conferences and these very elite scientific conferences for a couple of years where um, the textbooks even had it in as a, as a co-stimulatory molecule. So um, we uh, decided, uh, Jeff Bluestone was another immunologist that came to the same conclusion as we did. And so, you know, ultimately, I think we, we, we were proven right, mostly by the knockouts that came along that were made by Tech Mac and, and my lab and Raleigh Sharp. Um, but again, the knockout was consistent with it, but didn't really prove it. I have to say that they weren't as knockouts usually considered to be. But in the meantime, one of the things that occurred to me because I had this interest in cancer was um, maybe this tells us something about why vaccines haven't worked because we knew that by studying regulation of, of CTLA-4 production, we realized that it's driven by the T-cell receptor signal. It's not there on a resting T-cell, but after it gets a TCR signal, it starts making it. And we showed quantitatively every time it gets another T-cell receptor signal, it makes more. And so I started thinking, well, maybe one of the reasons all these tumor vaccine trials have failed isn't because the antigen, you know, the vaccine that they're using is the wrong one, or as many people thought, the immune system just can't see tumor cells because they're too close to normal. Maybe it's just because they're giving the off signal. And so uh, first experiments we did to, to just determine whether it was a lack of antigens, which is what a lot of people thought, is we put the ligands, uh, other people had discovered the ligands for CD28 and CTLA-4 molecules called V7. And we took tumors that grew in mice and would kill them. All we need to do is put a B7 molecule that gave the CD28 signal and they'd be rejected. And so they had the antigens. The reason they're not recognized is because they didn't have co-stimulation. They didn't push the gas pedal. They gave the ignition switch signal, but not the gas pedal. And so they're effectively invisible. And so once we realized that, then I thought, well, what happens then is that CTLA-4 might be coming along 
And because the, the T cells can't see the antigen until they get picked up by cells that could give that B7 signal, and uh, which was known to be death and inflammation. You have to get that first. So the tumor has a head start. And then maybe if they get too big, then CKLA4 stops the expansion of T cells before you can get a sufficient number to kill them. And so the obvious experiment was to see if we block CKLA4 in vivo where there's a tumor, could we get it projected? And sure enough, that with every tumor model we looked at, either by itself or with CKLA, with a vaccine or with some chemotherapy or with radiation, we could cure those tumors. And so that's that's kind of how we went from just the basic learning the basic mechanisms of T cell regulation, working out that, you know, the antigen receptor wasn't the whole story. There was a gas pedal and a brake. And once you understand those, you can start thinking about how to, you know, treat cancer. And so. You had a couple of really interesting insights you mentioned. One was looking at not just your results and, oh, it matches what I expect, but making sure it doesn't exclude other possibilities. And that's really insight. The other thing you talked about is you took an agnostic physical or biochemistry approach, which I, I, I like. I'm a biochemist by training as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that general approach to biology, that, you know, that structural agnostic mechanistic, you know, physics approach, as it were, because chemistry and biochemistry and physics are all, you know, almost the same in a way. And, and how that has helped drive decisions. I see it in other parts of, of science as well. Yeah, I think it's particularly useful when when there's a lot of confusing data out there and the, and the obvious thing, or not not so obvious, but I think people have taken other approaches and just gotten nowhere and there's a lot of contradictory data. I mean, that's very, just the way I felt about it. I went into the thing thinking oh, I would learn from reading literature, but all I did was get confused. So, uh, but I think in a situation like that, that's the best way to do it. Just back off, say, I'm not going to have my mind cluttered with a bunch of data that I don't understand and it seems to be to be confusing and self-contradictory. I want to just clean it up, you know, by reasoning what I know based on just the minimum things that I know, what what it should be like and test that instead of just getting a factor, you know, and making, you know, making stories up about it, uh, which is what I think a lot of people did. <laughs> But anyway, I, I think it's a, a valid approach, particularly, as I said, when there's a lot of confusion around and, and making any assumption based on that work is going to lead you down the wrong path. And so talking about assumptions and expectations and, and, and how this relates to your early to this work and the discovery of CTLA-4. So you kind of touched upon that, but I think some when I hear... Uh, it's hard to remember the these things that we take for granted. You know, they didn't exist <laughs> before. And so, and you mentioned that it was kind of controversial to think about um, T cells having an off switch, an on switch, a, a break. How has our understanding from from the start evolved about how do T cells see around them? How do they respond? Was it surprising when you think whether well, there's a second signal? How how did you how did people start realizing that a second signal was necessary? What are the kind of experiments that guided our under, early understanding of T cell activation? Yeah, the early, the early experiments were actually done by Ron Swartz and Mark Jenkins at, at the National Institutes of Health when people knew that these cells called dendritic cells 
were the really the best cells that you know both um, activating a naive T cell and there was a phenomenon called energy where if a T cell just got an energy receptor signal, they could be turned off. You know, and but uh, what they showed was that um, you could have the right antigen. Anyways, what you have to know is that T cells recognize antigens in the context of major hashtag compatibility antigens. So there's actually two structures that are recognized, um, a bit of a peptide in the, in the context of the protein. Um, but if you have the right antigen, but the wrong MHC molecule, T cells don't get activated. But if you have the right antigen and you inactivate the, the, the co-stimulatory signal, the B7 thing, they, they, uh, um, they, st they still don't get activated. Sorry, you have the right antigen and the right MHC, but you don't have this other thing. That's not sufficient to activate. People showed you could chemically knock that out and then add back another dendritic cell that had the wrong MHC and couldn't interact with the T cell receptor at all, and that would be sufficient to restore it. And so that was the observation. And that, that so the original um, definition of co-stimulation was an obligatory second signal that T cells need in addition to that antigen receptor engagement. But as we realized, uh, while I think that CD28 is still the only molecule that matches that, people began to realize there were a lot of other molecules that would add to that or inhibit it in some cases. There were both types found. They're still now they're all called co-stimulatory or co-inhibitory. And what we realize it's, is that it's a lot more complicated than we thought. We don't know the number of those yet. It probably numbers in, I would say, a dozen or so molecules um, that potentially have that sort. And depending on the, the beautiful thing about the immune system is it, it does a lot of different functions depending on you know, whether you've got a bacterial infection, a virus infection, a cancer cell. Um, uh, whatever it, it yeah, responds in different ways, and you tune with different cytokines being produced, and and uh, so there, all these other molecules play a role in in regulating how that plays out, and we're still fig figuring that out. There, there's another type of cell called um, the, the macrophages, um, is is is, is uh, main type of, of, of cell there, but there are really a lot of different types of these cells that can either activate or turn off T cells. And there, there's some molecules on those too that, that can shape an immune response. And so what now we, we realize it's not just on or off, it's the quality of the response is also shaped by all those signals. And these myeloid cells of which macrophages are a type um, are, a, a really com complicated set of cells that um, may differ by only two or three genes that are being expressed, but as a consequence of that, have very different effects on T cells. And it's it's understanding that you know those cells are almost like a continuum. It's hard to say say there's one type or two types or three types. You know, and we realize that T cells too are somewhat plastic in their function uh, that adapt to what's happening when the immune response is initiated and, and things that can shape it as it rolls out. And so just to make sure you get the right response at the right place at the right time and, and don't cause autoimmunity. And um, so uh, the, the, the number of these entities is very, very 
I'd say it's a dozen or so now at least that were being are being looked at. And so it's very complicated. It's it's uh it's one of the beauties of biology. We think we've got it figured out and we figure then we understand that that we've seen the prototype and biology is is more of a continuum than discrete boxes and we need to not but try to put things in boxes and say this is this kind of thing because they'll blend into each other now when you get enough data and then realize what's going on. That, that sounds like my Sumir hypothesis of T-cells I keep telling Brenda about. Well, that's why myeloid cells in particular look like a smear. If you look like, look at single cell RNA, you know, you see and you group them, you know, by the modern computational things, group them according to who's more similar, or who's more different. It does look like a smear, just a big blob on a on a on a graph. Yeah. So CTLA four, you figured out that there was a inhibitory stimulus. What was the journey to the clinic, which is where you know it's had such a profound impact? I mean, I'm sure it was rapidly adopted and immediately moved in with no result. Well, yeah, so. right. <laughs> so we got this. We got the result, and. Uh, it was like I said. It was while it was while the debate was still going on. We already had the cancer data when people were still arguing whether C four was a positive or a negative. And um, uh, I think, actually, I think that our data, together with the knockouts, was the strongest evidence that it really was an inhibitory signal. We showed when you took it away, tumors got rejected. Um, but anyway. Um, so I carefully told the patent, you know, the UC patent office, you know, I want to do this right so they get patent. So I'm going to talk about it at the International Symposium or International Association of Immunology Societies in San Francisco in 95. And so I presented it there and everybody went, oh, cool. You know, and that was about it. And uh, at the time, you know, the genome, sequencing was was quite popular and it became evident that cancer was caused by driver mutations you know locking on the signals that normally would be off and telling a cell to divide for example and because of the failure of all the vaccine trials I mean, immunology had just fallen in disfavor and so i went to i don't even remember how many um big pharma little pharma startups and uh, you know, they just said, no, immunotherapy will never work. And for four over four years uh, after that paper was published, it took um, to find it. And it, it was really an infuriating time because people would say, well, it, it's, it'll never work. And I said, you're a scientist. How can you say that? You know, I mean, look at the data. If you want to tell me it's not going to work, tell me something's wrong with my data. Look at my data. They say, well, it'll just never work in humans. It's a mouse thing, you know, which is, that is to say, it never has, so it never will. And it works in mice, but it'll never work. I mean, you're not going to know unless you try. But think of it, if it worked, you know, we could cure a lot of cancers because you're, you're modulating the immune system, not the cancer cell. You're not attacking the cancer cell. So it would, the kind of cancer wouldn't matter, you know, and uh, still. And finally, the only way it worked was there was a company that, um, called Metarex that had access to mice that had the antibody genes replaced by humans and provided a very quick and easy way to a clinical reagent. Only they didn't have any clients. And so we had a 
you know, the perfect test for them. And we teamed up and uh, actually with a friend called Alan, named Alan Corman. And I really started making the first antibody, making the immunogen to use, you know, the human chimeric protein. And then Niels Longberg was the head of this company. And so they made the first antibody, uh, MDX010, it's called, became epilumumab. But uh, so finally it went into early clinical trials and they were done, some of the early ones were done in metastatic melanoma, you know, which at the time had a, a, um, the median survival was seven months after diagnosis and fewer than 3% of people were alive at five years. And that, yet there were, I think it was three out of 14 patients in the safety trial, one injection of that, by the tumors all went away. And some of those were still alive 20 years later. Anyway, it went into early trials, and we know that epilimumab by itself cures about 20% of patients with, with metastatic melanoma. And um, later on, PD-1 came along from Hanjo and Arlene Sharp and Gordon Freeman. It hits another checkpoint that works on, at a different point, not during priming of a T-cell like C-T4 works, but works on T-cells that are fully differentiated and inhibits their function. So it also works against, and they, these work against many different kinds of tumors. But because of the different way in which they work, of course, you can put them together. And right now, uh, the two of those antibodies, there's a randomized uh, trial, very large randomized trial, which is the gold standard, you know, in, in, in clinical uh, studies. Uh, that's eight and a half years out now with over 50% of the patients still alive. So now, and, and so eight years, nine, well, actually it's more closer to nine now, maybe even 10, but anyway, that's considered curative. There's one of the patients that I met, was treated in 2004 uh, at the time. You know, she still, she has two kids now, still doing great, you know. So these, 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 these drugs are curative on a fraction of patients. And, uh, but anyway, so it went from, Nobody would believe it to that first result in melanoma. And then everybody said, oh, this is a great melanoma drug, but it's because they have so many mutations and so many targets. You know, and then because, you know, for example, sometimes lung cancer have the same thing. Lung cancer responds very well. But now we know that some cancers like kidney cancer that don't have very many mutations also respond very well. And anyway, um, so it's went from nobody believed it to everybody now uses it for everything. And um, I mean, the good news is it works about 20% of the time. That's also the bad news, uh, of course, because, um, but I think that uh, the, the job now is to really get into the, 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 the other cells in that smear of those cells that interact and regulate T cells and find out how to deal with those. And I think we'll get it up. And also to try different ways of doing it. There have been some trials recently of, combinations in our single antibodies even in what's called um, neoadjuvant trials where you start giving the drug and then you do surgery and then continue the drug that have response rates over 90% in lung cancer and in melanoma. I mean, these are too early to say how durable they're going to be, but there's no reason to expect that they won't be as durable. So so now everybody, you know, wants it. Every, everybody wants their drug. Unfortunately, um, it's it's uh, field's gotten so so crowded. They're doing 
many combinations without any data. If I could go on a soapbox for a minute, the, temp, the what what now is you know companies are combining everything they own or maybe making some things without really thinking about the biology, and um, so there are these you know, 100 patient trials, there are over 3,000 trials of 50 to 100 patient trials. Look, you know, that take three to five years, you look for a statistical difference. And we know now from those patients that it, where it's successful, we know what the signature for success is. Mm. And so what needs to be done is, is what we're trying to pioneer now, if I could give a uh, brief commercial for, the, for our institute is, is really do small trials, something pioneered by Pam Sharma here, um, where you treat a dozen patients, perhaps, you get biopsies of the sample very early after therapy, and look at what happened. What are the cells? How they change? What are you missing? You know, because we know what the success looks like. What are you missing? Is there some type of cell there that we know is inhibitory? Did a new molecule pop up? Because some of these inhibitory molecules I was mentioning earlier. Some of them pop up in prostate cancer, but not melanoma. Others pop up in melanoma, but not prostate cancer. So it's more complicated than, than you know than, than we understand. Uh, but we need to get those data because you know if you've got an antibody to one of these molecules and you combine it, that combination may be great for prostate cancer, but if you test it in melanoma, it's not going to work. And then you'll say it doesn't work and throw it in the trash, and nobody will ever visit it again. You know, so we're killing a lot of things that have potential by not looking at the mechanism early on. And so I think that's one of the pushes that we're trying to make is get away from these 500, you know, 100 to 500 or whatever, these large trials where you just do statistics to do small trials to guide them, de-risk them, and come up with a combination that works before you even look for a clinical signal. So regarding CDLA4 inhibition, you know, now that we have the expert, on the show. I have a couple of questions uh, regarding what do we understand exactly about the mechanism of action in cancer patients? Because of course, inhibition of the inhibitor in effector cells is part is a great part, but we also, there's also some data suggesting that uh, depletion of T-Rex might be involved. And there's these differences between, you know, different companies are making different CTLA-4 inhibitors and somehow they don't work exactly the same. So what what do we understand about that now? Oh, you're, you're exactly right. What we showed in, in mice was that there's a cell intrinsic mechanism. I mean, this we our work was done with our, well, we did it before regulatory T cells had been recognized, but we did it with purified cells <clears throat> where there weren't any of those around. Um, but now we know that some antibodies do deplete those. It's a secondary mechanism because um, uh, regulatory T cells express tons and tons of, of CTLA-4, which gets so dense that um, they that could work in a technique where certain macrophages will kill them if they're coated with antibody. So, so some of the antibodies that are clinically used can do that. Um, and so, but CTLA-4, IPI, the, the first one, CTLA-4, does not do that. It does not deplete. Some of our mouse antibodies do. Some of them don't. And the ones that do deplete tend to work better than the ones that don't. So I guess the bottom line on that was there's still room to improve ipilimumab either with a separate way of killing regulatory T cells or by engineering it, or it will do that as well. 
the danger of that is that you increase the chance of, of adverse events as well, autoimmunity and things. So, you know, with all this stuff, there's a there's a there's a balance. But but that is a good point. The complexity, the mechanism is complexity, complex depending on the very nature of the of the reagent that's being used. Both the uh, the um, antibodies that are against CTLA4 that are in common usage now, both of those, as I should say, neither of those uh, depletes T-Rex. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot more could be gained if we could do that as well. But the, as I said, the trade-off would be most likely additional toxicity. Mm -hmm. Which is not minor, no? Because DLA-4 can be can, Yeah, it can be, it can be major. In some cases, it can be lethal. Yeah. But it, but now people know how to catch it early, and not always, but most most of the times it can be managed with you know immunosuppressive agents, which don't get in the way of the of the tumor, any tumor effect. So to go with that, you talked a little about the future, right? With these small trials that really get some mechanism, which which I empathize with from my my day job. It's a similar approach because sometimes you just got to get into people and understand. Uh, what else do you think is next in the immunotherapy land? You mentioned like some, you know, cancer specific inhibitory signals. So I'll put that as one thing you've mentioned. Is there anything else that you're kind of looking forward or that 360 view you like to take where you kind of try to see the problem for all sides? You see some other holes in our understanding you really want people to go after? Well, I think a big one is the big one is the, is the these myeloid cells. I mean, the, one of the big problems in glioblastoma pancreatic cancer i mean there there's some different ones but one of the things that they share very high levels of suppressive myeloid cells that we've got to break through somehow to get it work but some work that we we some work that we've done and others but we have a paper in press showing that um if you do the treatment properly you can turn the suppressive myeloid cells into ones that support t-cell killing and can add to it. And so I think that's that's where the next field is figuring out, forgetting T, well, you know, forget the T cells, but finding ways of, of epigenetically shifting the myeloid cells from a suppressive to a more inflammatory phenotype that would support killing tumors. A whole new, new frontier, I think, of understanding, because it's clear that these are, not to get too complicated, but these are ways of changing gene expression um, by, by changing certain signaling pathways in the, in the cells, the, the genes that are made to change their function. Uh, we're just beginning to learn how to, how to do that. Yeah, I guess the T cells can only go where, where the, the, the myeloid cells are taking them in a way, so they, they need the right instruction. And so there's so much... Uh, has been done. So you mentioned so many clinical trials, so much uh, change in the kind of mind shift on, on our understanding on, on cancer and what we can do about it. I think immunotherapy of cancer, a lot of these, I, 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 I am, I'm a big fan and I'm always, you know, saying, uh, I used to work in an institute that did extensive, uh, checkpoint inhibition trials. And it's, it's just, fascinating to see how all of a sudden we're not, we're not thinking about, you know, killing the cancer cell, you know, uh, putting chemotherapy, radiation, but actually getting your own immune system to to do it. How, from a more kind of a personal uh, point of view, 
how does it feel to 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 know that your work has been so instrumental in this huge kind of earthquake in our in in treatment and what 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 is the kind of satisfaction that you that you that you 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 get from from not being here and and having done this? Well, a, a lot. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I uh, watched my my mother passed away from lymphoma, and she had burns on her neck from radiation, and her brother died from lung cancer, and he went from being a robust Marlboro-like man when he was a cowboy, he ran a ranch, and and uh, you know, to just a skeleton almost in an oxygen tent because all the chemotherapy they had gotten, and and um, another uncle that died because. He had melanoma and there wasn't any treatment. So he just said, hell with it. I'm just going to enjoy my life, you know, for the last few months. And I said, there's got to be a better way. You know, I thought that a long time ago. And I'm just, just glad to have had a chance to, to do that. And I tell you, every time I meet a, a patient, you know, that has, that has benefited, it, it, I don't know, it's, uh, it just affects me in an emotional way that's hard to describe. You know, it's, I'm just so just happy, glad that you know I had a, a you know played a role in in helping people like like that. You know, I mean, it's, it feels pretty good. I mean, it, it's you know all the you know the awards and all that stuff is one thing, but just meeting you know seeing people that are alive because of the treatments is is the award. And but as I told you earlier. We're only getting about 20% of all cancers now, so there's still work to do. So, Yeah, for sure. The work is never done, but uh, definitely a huge improvement. And so many people you know, owe their lives to all these new technologies. It's just, it's just great. I, I'm always fascinated and I'm always so grateful to be, you know, witnessing all of this. So in an alternative reality where you weren't saving so many lives by going into science and biology and doing the work you've done, what would you be doing? Well, I think I'd like to be a musician, you know. I mean, I, I, I play harmonica, blues harmonica a bit, country western blues, and I've played with a number of, you know, bands, garage Type bands over the year, including now I play with a group called the Checkpoints, oddly enough, made up of cancer scientists. And and uh, and one of the really fun things about that is a little bit like the lab in that, you know, to do science now, you and, and even back before everything got as specialized as, as it is now, you know, different people in the lab have different skills. And and putting together, you know, people's different ways of looking at things and putting together with it all together. And, you know, and you feel like we got a team, we're going, you know, da da da, everybody contributes. It's, it's a lot like getting a band together, you know, when everybody's in tune, or not, maybe not too well in tune, but anyway, get together enough to really have that when you know it clicks is really fun, you know. And uh, I've had, I, I sit in with Willie Nelson quite a bit when he, when he comes to Houston and uh, had the, you know, had the fun of, I mean, he, he tolerates me on the stage for a while. Like, mainly because I'm a good friend of his, Mickey Raphael, his, his uh, Raphael, his um, regular harmonica player, you know, and so Mickey lets me come out every, you know, there are a few songs when he's in town and that, that's quite a thrill too. So just the, the fun of, you know, playing in front of people's 
it's a lot. But the other part is that it's a lot like it's a lot like having a lab. For those listeners who don't know you, you know, you you often um, delight uh, Congress attendees with your with your skills and your your band. So you did you did play it at the IOS conference, was it? Yeah, we played there. Well, that, that actually was a it was just a we just got together a bunch of people. Uh, <laughs> two of us, Tom Gajewski and I, had played together before, but none of the rest of them had. But but the common thing was music, and we yeah. managed to even do. Uh, What was it? Miss You. We did a Stone song, Miss You, that, you know, <laughs> I'd never played before, you know, and and uh, it sounded okay. You know? I'm sure people either liked it, didn't mind, or didn't, don't remember. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this has been such a wonderful conversation. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to to talk to you. Um, we could go kept going for a long time, but I think that we have reaching the end of our time here. But um, so thank you so much for joining us. Of course, James Allison uh, to the Immunology Podcast. I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed uh, this conversation. And we're looking forward to see what's next for you from your lab, from uh, your collaborators and what's next in immunotherapy. It's just a magical field, I would say. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can reach out to us on X, aka Twitter, uh, at Immunopodcast, or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or if you want to suggest a guest. <laughs>